Hey, it's me, Mariah Smith. You might remember me from season one of Spectacle, where we looked under the hood of reality TV. We talked about racism in the Bachelor franchise, American tribalism on display in Survivor, and a lot more. You know, I miss dissecting popular culture with y'all, so for season three, we are going to celebrate and critique another problematic fave, true crime. Do you watch every Jean Benet Ramsey special? Do you know where you were during the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase? Or maybe, after a long day of work, you like to curl up with a big glass of wine and Dateline. In episode one, we'll dive into how a lot of people first came to know true crime. Unless you were living under a rock in 2014, you probably know this jingle. It's the theme song of the true crime podcast, Serial. And Serial was a hit. The first season was downloaded more than 300 million times. Yes, I said 300 million. Produced by Sarah Koenig and Ira Glass of This American Life, the podcast became known for its music, its host, and the narrative style of storytelling. There's an intimacy in Serial that you don't get from your evening news. It was called Serial because, well, it's serialized. You're following one story all the way through, which, not too long ago, was a big deal. In this case, we follow Koenig as she investigates a seemingly solved homicide, the 1999 murder of 18-year-old Hay Min Lee, who was found strangled in a Baltimore park. Koenig gets to know the convicted killer, Adnan Syed, Lee's ex-boyfriend who was sentenced to 30 years, and who maintains his innocence. Sarah Koenig shows her work as the show goes on. You hear her talking to her producer in the car, and how she's building a rapport with the convicted murderer in a way that feels almost friendly. My interest in it, honestly, has been you. Like, you're a really nice guy. Like, I like talking to you, you know? So then it's kind of like this question of, well, what does that mean, you know? I mean, yeah. What does that mean? Uh, yeah. Oh. I mean, you don't even really know me, though, Tony. Uh, I, I, I'm I, You don't. I don't, maybe you do. Maybe, I mean, you know, I don't, we only talk on the phone. I don't understand what you mean. Are you saying phone relationships aren't legit, Adnan? Oh my God, you're hurting my seventh grade self. I, I'm not, I mean, it, 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 it's just it's weird to hear you say that because I don't even really know you. It, but wait, are you saying you, you don't think that I know you at all? Did we know Adnan Syed? Would we ever really know him? I mean, that's why we kept listening to Serial, right? This connection Sarah Koenig formed with him, it was riveting. We lived for those phone calls. This is a global tell link prepaid call from... Adnan Sayed. An inmate at a Maryland correctional facility. The show was so popular that Koenig's reporting style became a trope. I mean, how many podcasts do you know that were lampooned on SNL? The boy maintained the toy had been brought by magic. 
by a mysterious man named Chris. But I had to ask myself, could Chris really have done this? And if so, how? Serial threw gasoline on an already flaming obsession with true crime. Instead of waiting for the latest long-form story to come out, or catching your weekly news magazine show, you could just go to Apple Podcasts and click subscribe to your heart's desire. Hey, weirdos, I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. And this is Morbid. Now, true crime is the biggest genre in podcasting, right up there with celebrity chat shows. I am looking right at you, Dax Shepard. You got Crime Junkie, Up and Banished, My Favorite Murder, and I could go on and on. I mean, Neon Hum Media, who makes this show, is part of that game too. Producing a ton of true crime content, including Dateline's The Thing About Pam. This obsession, it's turned the people who tell these stories into celebrities. Yeah, what do, what do you think about that kind of celebrity that's developed, like Bill Hader spoofing you? It's very weird. I don't know what to think about it. I mean, it it's flattering. It's enormously flattering. That voice. That's none other than Dateline correspondent and true crime legend, Keith Morrison. He's talking to our producer, Joanna Clay. Um, like, for example, if you look on, like, Etsy... Um, there's like mugs with your face on it. There's like little Keithisms that are like, it was going to be a great day. Or was it? (laughs) Keith has been telling these stories for decades on Dateline to the point that he's become a bit of an icon. You can get Keith Morrison magnets, mugs. I mean, the NBC store sells a life-size cardboard cutout. Okay, I'm adding that to my cart right now. Please and thank you. In this season of Spectacle, we're going to dissect our messy obsession with true crime. We'll dive into the first TV trials. Mr. Menendez, are you related to Eric Galen Menendez who's seated here? He's my brother. Serial killers as sex symbols. So many people have been swooning over Netflix documentaries about serial killer Ted Bundy. Violent headlines and what they do to the people behind them. Mike, it's fender bender reporting, it's demeaning. And the rise of the citizen sleuth, armed with TikTok, Instagram, and a keen eye for Spotify playlists. While Gabby Batito's boyfriend was riding back from Teton National Park after his fiance disappeared, he created a new Spotify playlist called Self Consumption. Why do we love true crime so much? What does it say about us? And how does it shape our ideas on law enforcement, killers, and ultimately victims? We'll dig into that and so much more. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith, and you're listening to Spectacle True Crime. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done 
felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. There's this great sketch on the TV show Portlandia. Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein are sitting in the back of what appears to be a briefing room in a police department. A cop at the front is detailing a homicide. And then you hear Armisen's character chime in. The air is humid in Portland, Oregon. There's an inescapable closeness that feels almost oppressive. It's a parody of the true crime podcast we love. I'm Darren Blum. And I'm Dana Blue. And this is Forgotten America, Rural Footprints. Armisen and Brownstein are spot on. The soothing, calm voice that's almost a whisper. The ordinary observations about things like the weather. The descriptions of their subjects that are just oozing with condescension. It's only been three hours since the body was discovered, but already this case is being badly bungled. It's important to remember that many of these cops are poor, uneducated, and bad at their jobs. There's an old saying in this. The banjo player following them around? I mean, I can't. Can we get a little bit of banjo? Oh, yes. That's nice. Thank you, Hans. Darren Blum and Dana Blue resonated as characters because, I mean, it is almost too real. I hear Armisen can do a dead-on Ira Glass, and I, for one, believe it. I mean, you can hear his public radio inspo for sure. The true crime duo touch on all these true crime tropes we take for granted, the primary one being proximity. Like we were talking about before, this intimacy between the journalist or host and their subject, especially if the subject is a killer. You know, as we've established, we all love a dash of murder. Sometimes this proximity, this closeness, is for the benefit of the story. Like in the case of Serial, Sarah Koenig was exposing real flaws in our justice system. But sometimes, it can veer into voyeurism, into entertainment. And in many ways, that's where the true crime genre has its roots. That gray area between real life and fantasy. The first and best example of this dates back to the 1960s. Truman Capote published In Cold Blood, first in installments in The New Yorker in 1965. The book came out the following year. It was an immediate sensation. That's Jean Murley. She studies and writes about true crime, including its origins. She says much of what we see as common in true crime today actually came from In Cold Blood. Capote was one of the first to really do uh, a deep dive into the psychology of the killers. 
When Truman Capote first pitched in Cold Blood, he was a short story writer and novelist. He had critical acclaim with Breakfast at Tiffany's. He was a high society type, hanging with the James Baldwins and Marilyn Monroes of the world. He didn't fit the mold of true crime writers of that era. The traditional daily news types who, you know, sat in the back of the courtroom. But at the time, Capote was on the lookout for a story, and he came upon one. The November 1959 murder of the Clutter family. It was, it was a big deal. It was shocking. And Truman Capote happened to read that little article in the Times. The Clutter murders shocked Kansas and the nation. Halcombe, where they lived, was a small town. Still today, it only has about 2,000 residents. It just seemed inconceivable that this whole family would be murdered this way. Two complete strangers breaking into their home, stabbing and shooting this family of four. So Capote packed his bags and set off for Kansas, bringing with him his childhood friend, Nell Harper Lee. Yes, that Harper Lee of To Kill a Mockingbird. He wanted to capture what the killings did to the small town of Halcombe, and he wanted to do it as a narrative, written like a novel, with scenes and characters. This introduces another ingredient in the true crime formula, which is that writers figured out that they could take, you know, smallish liberties, inventing dialogue, um, writing scenes that would appeal more to a reader or a viewer, turning real people into characters. The idea of getting to know what makes a killer tick, their childhood, it's something we take for granted with true crime now. But when Capote did it, it was pretty novel. So, yeah, Capote started, I would say, not just the genre as we know it, but that deep interest in the psychology of the killer. I thought I'd bring our lead producer, Joanna Clay, to talk about it. You remember her from season one, right? Hey, Mariah. Hello, Joanna. So happy to have you back. <laughs> Thank you. Excited to be here. <laughs> um, so I'm here to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman's insane and amazing performance as Truman Capote. Oh, my God. I... So I saw this movie years ago, obviously, and then I rewatched it recently, and I was blown away. I'm like, oh my God, that's why it was so great back then, because of the story, obviously, but also his performance is just 10 out of 10. I know, I miss him. So Capote came out in 2005, and it does a really good job, I think, of showing kind of Capote's process as a writer, um, like his approach on building sources in the town, and most importantly, his connections with the killers. Okay, yeah, so we will 100% get to that because it's truly mind-blowing. But first, I want to talk about the town. Yeah. So you were saying before, like, Truman Capote was this highbrow socialite. He's, like, hanging out with celebrities. Um, he's very fancy. So when he shows up to this small Kansas town, he just 
sticks out. Um, there's a great scene less than 10 minutes into the film. He's just arrived. He's with Harper Lee and he just, you know, strolls right into the police department. Here we have a clip. Mr. Dewey, Truman Capote from the New Yorker. Bergdorf's. Sorry? The scarf. Oh, nice. Thank you. And I love that because it was very much giving, you know, someone who is a former but forever New Yorker, when you go into any town, like, listen, like, give me some respect. Like, I have nice things. But in that moment, obviously, Capote, no one is curious about your scarf. I mean, but again, like you said, he did stick out. And you mentioned before, he is a hot, he was a socialite. Like, at the beginning of the movie, he talked about having conversations with James Baldwin. Um, there were other moments where I believe he was talking about, like, meeting up with Marilyn Monroe, just crazy stuff. But that's why having Harper Lee with him was very helpful. And to speak on that, we did talk to another true crime expert, and this is what she had to say. My name is Sarah Weinman. I'm the author of The Real Lolita and Scoundrel, and I'm also the editor of Unspeakable Acts, an anthology of recent true crime writing. Capote himself is such a character and a persona that is so distinct and alien to those who he is trying to talk to, that there's like a barrier, there's a distance. But Harper Lee, being a lady of the South who knows how to play that particular role, is able to cajole a lot of people into speaking with them when Capote himself might not be able to. And what she's saying here, like Harper Lee kind of, you know, helping him out in terms of maybe being a little bit more approachable. We see that in the movie. Um, there's moments where Harper Lee is, you know, talking to people in town and she kind of like looks at Truman and she's like, I got this one. Like, don't worry about it. I loved that. And like, it was so, it, it was such a great, those little moments were such great moments to show their friendship, but also her capabilities as a writer and um, a researcher and also her willingness to want to help him. But I, uh, I also want to give credit to Capote where credit is due because he really capitalized on, I think his own ability to schmooze with the people of the town. Like he was when we saw scenes of him with his friends in New York. So if like we were trying to get cops to talk to us and give us information, we would probably just like write them an email or call them or, you know, have to write a FOIA request. But Truman Capote just turns up on your doorstep with a bottle of booze and is like, hey, cops, let's party. <laughs> I mean, listen, he was using the tools he had in his arsenal and he knew that the lead investigator's wife knew of him was... Uh, aware of him and the circle he ran in, and he knew he could capitalize on that, which I found to be expert way to go about it. Um, definitely <laughs> a little left of center. Yeah, it kind of um made me think of like what we'd consider kind of like celebrity journalists now, maybe like Aron and Pharaoh, who you know does amazing work, but like that level of celebrity probably grants you a certain level of access to just because people are curious about you. And you could see that with the investigator and his wife. I think she had mentioned that they had read his books or, you know, they knew who he was. And Humphrey had just about moved into the hotel bar. Humphrey Bogart. Where he and John. John Houston. <laughs> and, uh, they drank every night. And I mean drank, you know, like famished water buffaloes. So... Kind of a left turn, but 
Just to give some context on, you know, the whole story, six weeks after the killings in December 1959, police would find the killers, Richard Hickok and Perry Smith. You know, and they had within in those six weeks roamed the country. Um, eventually, they got caught in Las Vegas. And during the movie, we start to learn why they did what they did, which is fully a straight up and down mess. But Gene Murley told us about it. Cops found out relatively quickly who the perpetrators were through the tip of a jailhouse informant. They had broken into the Clutter's house because they were told by someone in prison who had worked for the Clutters that that there was a lot of money in the house. So they were really looking for money that night. And they ended up killing all four of the the Clutters in the process. And they didn't get any money. They got maybe 15 bucks and a radio. 15 bucks in a radio is beyond depressing and dark. Um, So Capote would actually get close to these killers. He'd visit them in jail. He'd write them letters. You know, he did with both of them, but he did really get close to one of the killers in particular. Mm Mm-hmm. Perry Smith. And I think this actually really gets at what we're trying to hone in on in this episode, how the narrative approach, it sort of allows closeness when the reporter and the subject form these connections and that closeness that proximity is part of what makes true crime narratives like in cold blood and serial so irresistible perry i want to take your notebooks with me i want to read them if i leave here without understanding you the world will see you as a monster always You know, he actually, Capote talks to Harper Lee um, about that particular conversation that we just heard. And she wants so badly to be taken seriously. To be held in some esteem. Do you? Do I want? Do you hold him in esteem, Truman? Well, he's a gold mine. And in this clip, I really want to focus in on the fact that he calls what Perry has, his stories, and as we heard before, his notebooks, a gold mine. And he kind of leads into this idea that he sort of forgot that at moments that these are real people, despite the fact that they are killers and on death row, but he sees them more as subjects than people. So I think also in terms of like, if if you want to lean into the exploitative aspect of it. I mean, it was treated a little bit like entertainment. Um, If you look at the photo shoot in The New Yorker, um, Richard Avedon, he's a very famous photographer, and he took photos of Perry and Richard. They're these black and white photos, and they're both kind of like in these um, white shirts, flexing, showing their muscles, sometimes like... Um, pulling shirts down to reveal tattoos and they're not like smiling at the camera like they're definitely like looking like tough guys but it, it didn't look any different to me than maybe a photo shoot for like a James Dean movie or you know something of that time it was definitely like bad boy killers but in a kind of weirdly sexualized way you just imagine if they did this to like another very well-known criminal like or killer like Jeffrey Dahmer like imagine if you like 
did a portrait of Jeffrey Dahmer where he's just like showing his muscles and like shirtless. It's just, it's just strange. <laughs> that It's truly sick. Like I can't imagine a world where someone would come up with the idea to have the photo shoot with these murderers. Someone would okay this idea. Then they would actually, you know, go ahead and do it. It's mind blowing. Cause like you said, the photos are truly like, something you'd see in a magazine, even to this day. Like, it's just so shocking. And if I were anyone close to the victims, if I were anyone with an idea of the story, I would be so offended. Totally, totally. You know, in scenes in the movie, and we know from just his actual reporting, that they actually did have a lot in common. They both had um, really difficult childhoods. They had parents who'd had abandoned them. They had siblings who had um, committed suicide and so there were things that they that they bonded over. I think Perry Smith thought he had a friend in Truman Capote but you know you have to remember at the end of the day Truman Capote was selling a book and it's kind of a tough thing because even if he really connected with Perry and had a relationship with Perry it's not on equal footing. Um, he has a very clear agenda. Um, it's something that comes up for for all you know journalists in some way is how to develop a rapport with your sources, get them to feel comfortable, to trust you. But where's the line and, and how do you know when you cross it? But totally. And like you can see that clearly the line has been towed if not crossed. I'm sure that bond he formed with Perry Smith is what made the book so compelling. You know, like today, look at Netflix. Some of the top shows or documentaries are about getting in the minds of killers, of understanding serial killers. And so there is a fascination in understanding how people ended up the way they ended up. And he tapped into that. He knew that that would be compelling. Um, But since... Truman Capote treated In Cold Blood like a novel. It also introduced some problems with the genre that we still have today. This desire to entertain, sometimes taking over the need to inform, you know, and that can be dangerous. I read a quote from the true crime writer Jack Olson. He was talking about In Cold Blood, and it just really stuck with me. He said... That book did two things. It made true crime an interesting, successful commercial genre, but it also began the process of tearing it down. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll 
instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. And in many ways, Serial Coming Out was a revival of In Cold Blood, of this moment where all of a sudden, true crime was elevated, serialized. With In Cold Blood, it debuted in installments in The New Yorker. The book was the first in the genre to be nominated for a Pulitzer. Here's Sarah Weinman again. In both cases, it was this idea that people who would never have considered themselves consumers of true crime were avidly taking in these particular, in one instance, this book, and another instance, this podcast. They were taking in these stories and rapidly consuming them in a way that they would never have thought to do with other works classified as true crime. When Capote wrote the true crime novel, it was, well, novel. People were used to reading salacious stories in the paper or pulpy paperbacks, but not true crime literature. You know, people might get some juicy details of a trial, but there wasn't this level of access. They didn't get into the minds of the killers. In the years since, everyone has desperately tried to get to know why people act the way they do. There's scripted shows like Criminal Minds or the series Mindhunter, based on the early days of FBI profiling. I'm Special Agent Tench. This is Special Agent Ford. This isn't an interrogation, Mr. Manson. We know you didn't commit the Tate or LaBianca murders. You have dozens of documentaries and scripted shows and movies about Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, and John Wayne Gacy. Police today found six more bodies under the home of suspected killer John Gacy. Then, with Serial, there came a shift. Similar to Capote, Koenig wanted to get to know Syed. But it wasn't just a morbid fascination. It was to propose the possibility that he didn't do the crime that he was accused of. While In Cold Blood, in many ways, showed a criminal justice system that works, the murderers were caught, they're convicted, and then punished, Serial revealed real flaws. Serial shocker. After spending 17 years in prison, Adnan Syed, whose case became famous with that popular podcast, he's getting a new trial. Serial fans eagerly awaited the final episode, hoping Koenig would deliver a verdict. Her perspective was nuanced. Did he do it? Maybe. Did the jury have enough evidence to put him away? She didn't think so. The show's attention got the case reopened, it's been appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. So far, his conviction has been upheld, but time will tell. The latest update, in March, a judge ordered additional DNA testing. But after Serial, there was an explosion of wrongful conviction coverage, like in the dark and wrongful conviction. Will getting to know a killer tell you if they're guilty or not? Uh, I don't think so. But it introduced this idea of not taking convictions at face value, of casting doubt on a system created to protect us. As Johnny Cochran said about OJ, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. 
Serial won a Peabody in 2015 for its first season. It was considered an innovative telling of a nonfiction story. Even though Sarah Koenig herself said it wasn't an original idea, serialized narrative is as old as the Dickens, and I mean that literally. Just like in Cold Blood, Serial drew a whole new audience to true crime. This American Life listeners, New York Times readers, folks who carry a New Yorker tote, coastal elites. People who were listening to season one of Serial and the case of Adnan Syed, they probably were not watching Dateline or 2020 or Investigation Discovery. It wasn't that audience. And likewise, people reading in Cold Blood... They probably were not necessarily reading pulpy books. They both left you wanting to have your mind made up. Did Adnan Syed do it? Did Perry Smith do it? There is a key difference between them, though. The internet. Which allowed Serial's listeners to stay connected to the story long after the show aired. They would go on Reddit and talk about certain suspects and reveal that they had driven by those potential suspects' houses. And there was a real sense of sort of breaching the fourth wall that to participate was to have a greater connection with not only the work, but also the crime. In many ways, Serial was this turning point. It converged with social media and having so much more information at our fingertips. If we wanted to keep digging after the final episode, we could. We could hunt for stories on our own. We saw it in August of 2021, with the disappearance of 22-year-old Gabby Petito, a blonde-haired white woman who captured the nation. People went digging for clues on social media, sharing conspiracies on Instagram, combing her boyfriend's Spotify, and sharing encounters with the couple on TikTok. Hi, my name is Miranda Baker, and on August 29th, my boyfriend and I picked up Brian at Grand Teton National Park at 5.30 at night at Coulter Bay. Just like reality TV, true crime isn't something you can just put in a box. Sure, some of it glorifies the perpetrator or feeds us unrealistic ideas about the criminal justice system. But the genre can amplify cases that aren't getting attention. It's led to arrests, exonerations, and it's saved potential victims and given families a sense of justice. So it is complicated. And like everything else complicated we cover on this show, we seem to never get enough of it. Like serial killers stalking their next victim, we prowl the podcast app and Netflix queue for our next new favorite show. True crime holds a mirror to us, the same way reality TV did, but in a much different way. This season, we'll get into typical spectacle topics like race and gender, but from an entirely different perspective. Why do we love true crime? And what does that messy obsession say about us? Coming up on this season of Spectacle, True Crime. People love crime and people love anything lurid. That's just human nature. 
how we've turned serial killers into sex objects. Here we have a guy who kind of looks and acts like a movie star. He's also very devious. He's also clearly brilliant. And all of these pieces kind of come together to make him a very attractive figure. How it's turned our deepest, darkest fears into entertainment. What is it about, you know, this long tradition of white women being in danger that is so compelling? And its creators into superstars. <laughs> I never in a million years would have thought that that would happen. We're diving deep into the dark, delightful, and oftentimes mortifying world of true crime. Spectacle True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design by Hans Dale Shee. Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Catherine St. Louis. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week. <laughs>